the Hollywood Trust podcast testimony series, sharing experiences of those affected by the Northern Ireland conflict and those people who have taken the decision to take positive steps for the future. Now here is your host, Eamon Becker. Hello again and welcome to this edition of the Hollywell Testimony Series. My name is Eamon Baker and my guest this week is Archdeacon Robert Miller. If you've missed any of our testimony episodes, you can listen or download for free on soundcloud.com, Apple Podcasts and now on stitcher.com. Search for Hollywell Trust. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and co-funded by the Derry City and Strabane District Council and the Community Relations Council. I, I tend to be an optimist, partly by conviction and partly by, by nature. And I think I've heard people talk about the time that we're in as we're emerging still from a time of violent conflict. And there's some indicators of peace as a reality becoming present. And yet there are other aspects of that piece that are proving a wee bit elusive. So for me, I would see, I suppose I could describe it as a, a fragile hope. If it's nurtured in the right way, it will grow and flourish in the, its fullness and, and bear its fruit as it should. But equally, there are some negative influences upon the peace building and, and so on at the moment that, that could retard that peace um, or slow that growth and I think unfortunately large P politics around the election maybe wasn't great in that it, it was forcing people back to you know fixed positions um, with regard to the difference that exists and, and some of the political um, social and sectarian difficulties that we've had in the past. But with saying that I would be hopeful because we've had a taste now of working together. We've had a taste of the local legislative assembly working to a degree and we've engaged in what I would refer to as small p politics where we've looked at health, we've looked at education and we've looked at infrastructure and I think there's a desire from not only our young people but I suppose from those of us that have grown up through the troubles as well to put that behind us and and to build a positive future. So I think we're not there yet, but I would be hopeful that given the right nurturing, we we could get there. And for you, Robert, what would be the right nurturing? From a church perspective, I think a part of that mix has to be forgiveness. I think a part of it also has to be a contextualised remembering of what's happened. It's not a sense of forgiving and forgetting. We, we have to find a way of telling the stories of pain and difficulty um, that, that, that really happened. We can't just, I think, pretend it didn't happen or pretend that we haven't been changed by what has happened. But I think that that can be a healing uh, it can be dealt with in a healing way. That healing's not by ignoring what happened, but by remembering it in some ways, but not in a way that makes you beholden then to old patterns of, of relating to one another. If I could take an example, whenever I came back to Derry about seven years ago, we employed a local playwright, Jonathan Burgess, who'd be well known to you, to write five theatre pieces um, under the title of Exile. Uh, and that was to take five vignettes of P 
people living in, in the, the kind of 20 teens, if you like, what has happened in the past affect them. And it was an amalgam of people's stories, but set in five different vignettes to allow people to remember collectively together in a safe way where they weren't put under the spotlight as individuals saying this is my story but that they could look at a wider story and say I recognise my story in that and I think I mean I was interested even with my own family the conversations between my father and myself that we had on the back of those in the wider society from all parts of the community where we put on the plays that people wanted to remember and even with the right nurturing, we're prepared to talk about some difficult things uh, that happened. Forgiveness in the situation where someone has lost a loved one, mm-hmm. it seems to me in Northern Ireland immensely challenging for people to commit to a forgiveness process. If we look at the concept of forgiveness, um, there's an inherent sense of unfairness within it. There's an inherent sense of a lack of justice within it and I suppose that I would see that then within a context of of Christian faith where we're reflecting upon what we believe is God's forgiveness shown to us in Christ and therefore it's it's the outworking of it I mean a phrase that people would remember is the story with St Peter you know where, where he says to Jesus you know how many times should I forgive when my brother sins against me and he says seven times thinking seven it's a perfect number and it's a big number and um, Jesus says no not not seven times but 70 times seven and Jesus isn't encouraging him to count more he's trying to say you know stop counting it's about the principle of of forgiving for me the place of forgiveness is to forgive you must first acknowledge what needs to be forgiven so there's a sense of a value that's placed upon the pain or the hurt or the brokenness that's experienced but we allow ourselves in forgiveness to free ourselves from from that one moment and we allow ourselves to build beyond it and and in some ways that's that needs grace it can be very difficult to do but some people would say forgiveness is primarily a gift to ourselves because sometimes the other person who's involved in the act of forgiving may never be aware of it. The person who some people would refer to as the perpetrator? Yeah, absolutely. May yeah. not be aware of the act of forgiveness that has yeah. been bestowed in his or her direction. Absolutely. And, and there could be lots of reasons for that, particularly within the context in, in Northern Ireland. It might be that that person has never publicly admitted that they were involved in a particular act or acts. And at the minute, we kind of are propelled down the road for people wanting justice. Truth and justice? Truth and justice, yeah. And I think that's a very difficult thing to achieve where perpetrators, or however we want to style them, are not prepared to admit or to you know, say, yes, it was me that was involved in that act or acts. And yet forgiveness... Whilst if you want to move into the the situation of reconciliation needs both parties to be involved, forgiveness can be begun within the life of the person that has survived, either as a family member or as an individual, um, where an act has been committed against them. They can begin to free themselves from being defined by that act 
do you see in your ministry? Do you see examples with obviously without mentioning mm-hmm. names? Do you see examples where people have been able to reach into their heart? Not necessarily as coming from a mm-hmm. Christian tradition, maybe from a Christian mm-hmm. tradition, maybe from any tradition or mm-hmm. no religious spiritual mm-hmm. background. Have you had the the grace or the gift of being in, in touch with, with people who've been able to forgive? Well, the short answer is yes. Um, have, I have spoken to people who, I'm not sure if they would have styled it that, that they've completely, you know, gone through an act of forgiving to a point of completion, but more that they have taken the decision to attempt to journey with forgiveness. Almost like you're pointing your hands there. It was almost like I could see a road yeah. between your hands. Yeah, well, that's right. They positioned themselves yeah. on the road. They're on direction. the road. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But for me, in terms of the peace process, if you want to, to still describe it in that way that we're in, it should always be dynamic in that peace will always involve an encounter with others. I would argue also with the other in terms of God and the divine it it involves that interaction and at times what people would say to me is that they believe that the best they can do is seek forgiveness from God for not being able to forgive in the way they would like to and that's sometimes with smaller things you know and broken relationships within families and those sort of things although that isn't necessarily small to the individual of course as well as sort of the, the community or global aspects of, of things that need forgiven. So I think there's something about opening yourself to the possibility of a different outcome, that something difficult has happened to you, which has hurt you or harmed or scarred you, and scar tissue can act in a way to restrict your movement, but forgiveness begins to soften that scar and allow people not be restricted by what's happened to them but often we need others to help us on that that journey and that's maybe where we come back to the example of exile in the plays where remembering and telling your story can help and at the minute I think the challenge is that we politicised the harm done to whomever over the 40 plus years of violence so allowing people to remember is contentious never mind any act of forgiving or seeking truth or justice the discourse that I hear from people who have have been traumatised been wounded who have suffered tends to be this is a generalisation around truth and justice Mm -hmm. less about the road that might include Mm -hmm. forgiveness Mm -hmm. have you any comment you would make on that the difficulty, I think, in Northern Ireland is not with truth, but it is with commentary. When someone has been murdered, there is a truth in that act has happened, but the, the, the difficulty in dealing with that truth arises because of the commentary. Was that rightful or was it wrongful? And, you know, depending the right or wrong finds definition in what a an individual or b a group of people place upon that in terms of interpretation so they were doing that because 
they were a member of the security forces, they were doing that because they were a member of a paramilitary organisation acting because of, you know, X, Y and Z. And whilst there is an objective truth within what has happened in Northern Ireland... That someone has died. 3,700 plus yeah, have died. Absolutely. There's a massive, a massive commentary. Well, there, there, there are at least two very distinct and, and mutually exclusive commentaries about those deaths. So it's not as simple as truth and justice because, you know, they, their interpretations are different, particularly with regard to the latter, with regard to justice. Yeah. What I'm hearing in my own head now is the voice is saying that for, uh, and I know many people who have been bereaved through the the violence of the Troubles, I guess what I'm picking from you or what I'm understanding from you is the commentary could be, but this was the right thing to do, so that people from a a given paramilitary stance, for Mm -hmm. example, or a guild state forces stance Mm -hmm. would say, but it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And are you saying then that that aggravates uh, the, the situation much more, and, and, and that's what people struggle well, to deal I'm, with. I'm not sure aggravates, but if, if we're looking for, for one story, then I don't think we're ever going to get there, because the interpretation is how people approach what they see. You know, we are getting to a period now where we're maybe talking two or three generations removed from a particular act that, that took place and so what those individuals are, are receiving is not just the truth of a death happened but also the received and agreed commentary that goes along with it mm-hmm. and so if in Northern Ireland were to seek a way forward in our relationship with the Republic and with our relationship with, with GB I think we set ourselves an impossible task that peace is defined by an agreed history. What we need to have is an accommodation of two histories in the sense of there will be different interpretations, but can we share the fact that there are the two approaches to it, even though we may say our approach is actually completely opposed to your approach, but we acknowledge that your approach is different. It will never be achieved by pretending that we have peace and wholeness and saying, look, we don't want you to talk about your pain or your sense of being a survivor or a victim because that's a wee bit awkward. That's, that's mm. talking about themes that make us a bit uncomfortable. I liken it often to the, I don't know if you're a Faulty Towers fan, but the, to the episode where the Germans visit, and it's don't mention the war, but of course Basil, as he only ever does, mentions it on every turn and occasion. But it's a bit like that, that we've said to victims or survivors of the violence that's been visited upon them or upon their loved ones, that this is a very difficult issue you're victimhood or your sense of being a survivor and we can't come to any accommodation in it within the political realities and institutions and actually it's your fault that it's not working because it's such a difficult issue. So the victim survivors end up feeling blamed as they dare to say here's my story, here's here's my reality? I think so. 
Now that's my, that, that would be my interpretation of it looking on. I've never put that premise particularly to a victim or a survivor, but it seems to me that maybe for the right reasons, politicians are saying this is a very important issue that we need to agree upon if we're going to move forward. But actually what they've done is they're almost saying, you know, this is the, this is the, the, the thing that's the stumbling block. Um, and and that's where, I suppose, outside of the the political arena, beginning to talk about forgiveness and the individual themselves being able both to remember but free themselves from a sense of being stuck. Um, that as the individual does that, affirming the individual can allow us to move forward, but not necessarily with an agreed history, not necessarily with even an agreed roadmap, but by a sense of saying there has to be a hope that the future can be better. What would you say to the victim survivor who absolutely refuses to uh, countenance, embrace forgiveness? Mm -hmm. Um, I know that um, uh, someone that I've talked to whose brother was shot dead by the provisional IRA mm -hmm. said to me that when he went to church, mm -hmm. quite often his minister, he's from the Presbyterian mm -hmm. community, uh, his minister would speak about forgiveness mm -hmm. and he felt um, some kind of guilt mm -hmm. because in his mind he knew that forgiveness was the journey to go on mm -hmm. but in his heart he, he couldn't reach forgiveness. And this was very troublesome too. Mm -hmm. There's two kinds of guilt, I think. There, there's, a, there's a guilt that we place upon ourselves that's unrealistic and unfair. And, and there's a, a guilt that I think God uses to drive us towards him. And I think the first thing I would say to someone who expressed that kind of sense of being stuck or... or a feeling of that even this is where I am what I want to affirm is God is with you and it's it's the message of I mean, we kind of reduce it to Christmas unfortunately and, and Christmas carols but of Emmanuel you know God with us that's how he identified himself in, in the person and work of Jesus and, and to that person I would be saying Jesus did not leave us a perfect example to follow and then well, I can't quite get there with the, the you know being perfect like he was. So where do we go? It it was the fact that Jesus did what we couldn't do. So that person who's having a struggle with their forgiveness, and and to be honest, I think everyone struggles with forgiveness. Otherwise, the question is, have they really engaged with it? But and I would be saying for them to know that God is with them in that struggle. Earlier on, I, I said about the fact of sometimes. People could only get to the point where they believe that God forgives them for their lack of being able to forgive. And yet there's something very significant within that of recognising God has done in Christ what we cannot do. And yet also when we can't do, we sometimes have to fall upon what God is doing. For the individual, the, the main person who is being in some ways further damaged it is themselves because they feel torn at being unable to do something they feel that they could or should or that there's an expectation upon them to do. So for them I'd want them 
to know and experience God's love because ultimately in acknowledging that God is prepared to forgive them even for their lack of being able to forgive is in one sense another step forward in acknowledging that forgiveness may just be possible but it's not set in a timeline on it. Robert, you're involved actively, as I understand it, in peace-building initiatives. Mm -hmm. And that's a a broad phrase, Mm peace-building initiatives. I understand that some of that work of necessity is is confidential. Mm -hmm. And and therefore it would be absolutely wrong for you to be breaking that confidentiality. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, could you speak in broad terms Mm -hmm. about... If, if you're able to, mm. of, of moments or uh, ways that you're working to bring us closer to a more fulfilling peace, mm-hmm. a more realised peace. Yeah. I think the first thing I would say is, uh, well, I'm a dairyman by, by birth, as well as conviction, you could say, but um, I've lived away from the, the, the city for, well, since kind of going to, to, to university when I was 18. And, um, and then initially when I was ordained and, and, and working in the Craigavon and Lurgan area. But I'm back now in, in the city itself, um, uh, seven years plus. One of the things I would say is whenever you're in and around the city, you realise the importance of relationship. Partly because everyone knows everybody else in the <laughs> area. Uh, if not, <laughs> they're related to you probably. Um, but there is a sense, I think, that, that we've been able to achieve in Londonderry and kind of city and, and county things that have been more difficult the other side of the Glenshane Pass because there's a, a degree of knowing and relationship that exists where people are prepared to use those relationships to try and say, look, can, can we find a way through this difficult situation? And for me... Um, when I was a, a, a young curate in Lurgan in 1995, I was ordained, and uh, not long after that, the two police officers were shot in Lurgan and Church Street, just actually um, directly outside the parish hall. I had a very distinct memory of going with my own Catholic uh, colleagues um, to visit those two widows, one of whom just had a baby and had just moved to new house and literally were sitting on cardboard boxes in their front room and to see the need to be a peace builder um, sometimes I've said to people you know God calls us to be peace builders not peace lovers everyone loves peace but it's not quite the same as, as being a peace builder so that, that's been something that, that has, has challenged me along with another story of a, a friend of mine who now is in Switzerland, has been there for a number of years, but he was ministering um, in the Woodburn area in, in Belfast, and just outside the, the church and, the, and the, the police station are physically very close. He got a phone call, he was only there about a fortnight, saying there's a riot outside your church, maybe you should go up. I think he was thinking, well, I'm not quite sure what you want me to do, but anyway, I arrived up at the church and I went over to speak to RUC as it would have been back then and uh, they said look they're your guys meaning the loyalists or whatever over on that side um, if you could even get them just to pull back um, then that would kind of take the tension out of it so uh, Clive had said he put, it put on the largest collar he could find so <laughs> be, uh, no one could, could miss the fact that he was a uh, clergy 
And uh, so he went over and they kind of indicated, go and talk to your man there, you know. And he said, all right, come on over to the side here. Clyde kind of very hesitantly said, look, I'm down just to see if you would pull back from, you know, the the, the rioting tonight. Uh, And he said, the guy just looked at him and he said, I haven't an F who you are. I wonder, would you just F off? And Clive said he kind of just sort of, you know, tail between the legs, headed off. But the thing that was in his mind was there was a complete disconnection. Now, I suppose he had the excuse he literally had only arrived. But there was a real disconnect between the wider community and, and the church. In ministry, one of the things I think we have the opportunity to do is to act as honest brokers. And to say, for the sake of being builders of peace, we will speak to anybody. And within that, to say, we're not going to get involved in advocating for one side, as it's perceived, or the other. But we're going to speak to whoever we need to speak to, to further peace within our communities. And so that's led to building different relationships with community peace builders, and also people within a context uh, of ministry. So my last parishes were in uh, Swatra and in Mahara in South Derry and I had just arrived it's probably about 15 or 16 years ago and was told that in four years there was going to be a district 12th in Makara which might be known for its orange traditions and so I decided at that point that I had to do something about this I couldn't just wait for it to happen and then you know as somebody had said to me they'd been beating lumps out of each other in Makara for years up and down the main street. We had to engage with it, and so we began a process. So when you say we, without naming any names... Well, I, I, was, I was involved with... Um, with There were some different community uh, people, but the Elam pastor at the time, and I um, together engaged with uh, somebody who had uh, experience in peace building to begin to talk to the loyal orders and those groups that kind of wouldn't have been happy about the loyal orders walking through Makara. And, uh, you know, through sustained effort and building year on year on, on normal feeder parades and that kind of stuff, we got an accommodation with those who were concerned about kind of orange presence in, in Makara and were able to have the, the district... 12th there with no protests and and no violence but it was to do with respect and agreement and conversation and I suppose whilst it was on a confidential basis being able to say to all those who had a stake in it you know you know who we are we were two local church leaders and we said we'll speak to anybody and and that's what we did it was somebody else that used the phrase honest brokers but that was a very helpful way of going forward where we weren't acting in inverted commas like chaplains of our part of the community but we were there to see you know how could we actually build a peace that doesn't ignore the issues and tries to just paper over them and it's hard work because as somebody said you're only as good as your last period so if something went wrong you know really you were back to square one and it's probably fair to say that you know within the PUL community and within the, the Nationalist Republican part of the community, they think very differently. One is very collaborative and egalitarian, so it's all about going back and discussing as a part of the wider group and, and what does this group feel, and yes, go back to the mandate. And that would be very much PUL part of the community, and uh, Nationalist Republican is very hierarchical. So someone you'd speak to some one person, 
they would be mandated to be there and they would say yeah or nay and that would be carried out. A steep learning curve at times and frustrating because you may be dealing with personnel changes then in PSNI where you've been working with somebody and been going quite well and then you're kind of reach a silent door and also politicians can be challenging because <laughs> they have an agenda <laughs> as well so nature of any of that kind of peace building work confidentiality is essential and yet there's always somebody wanting to know and the media, for example, sniffing around. Yeah, I mean, I've had this discussion with with with, with different people in the media, and um, I I know it's maybe slightly unfair to say they're just looking for good copy and program content. I think the best work we will probably never hear about because otherwise people won't engage with it. But it's the outcome. They talk about that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, and that you might not be able to to see him, or uh, you can sense the effect of his work, and perhaps that's maybe the model we need to use within peace building as well. Would it be fair of me to, I'm thinking that for you peace building is part of your ministry, even Mm -hmm. being that honest broker is part of your ministry Mm -hmm. and when you say speak to all sides Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that also means listen to all sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, of my own ministry as an ordained priest in the Church of Ireland. We're reminded in Scripture that that we're ministers of the reconciliation, you know, the reconciliation between humanity and God through the work of Christ. And we're called to share in that work. And so what motivates me is my Christian faith that's done within a context of where there may be faith, different faith or none. And in some ways that's irrelevant because what I draw upon is my faith to motivate me and yet the the motivation for for doing that work is to encourage one, that we see ourselves as a single community with different constituent parts rather than always trying to fragment into this is this community and this community and this community and see them as distinct. I mean we live in a, a one community defined often by geography and Whilst there are lots of other, you know, socio-economic, political, religious, faith, um, you know, designators within that, we should allow that to become a richness rather than a kind of separate night thing. Do you resent the the term two communities, which is often yeah? I'd, I try I try deliberately not to use the the term two communities because I think it it just highlights. A, a desire for independence whereas one community it allows for distinctives of nature and character but it emphasises an interdependence A vision there I guess if I say there's two communities it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if I speak about one community mm-hmm. there's a vision mm-hmm. implicit in that Yeah because it's something we need to work at I mean if you think of a one community model as a family you know, families involve people at different ages and stages with different views, different desires for independence, teenagers, for example, um, desires for interdependence, an elderly parent or somebody with an illness or an infirmity that needs others within the family. And so there are lots of things that happen within that, and yet you don't say that's one family, so they're all exactly the same. You know, it's made up of individual constituent members, and so are communities exactly the same. There are different tastes and flavours and opinions and some of those opinions you know have very stark outcomes uh, within our society but it's trying to draw people to see those designators of character or identity as not being 
I suppose, mutually exclusive. They may be mutually exclusive in the sense of one opinion is actually diametrically opposed to another, but within our society, those can be held together. I can value the opinion of another, but totally disagree with it. And I think peace is not looking for a lowest common denominator where we need to forget the difficulties of the past or the political ideologies held to, but where we can actually remember them and yet say, you know, look, we cannot go on acting in a violent way towards each other because we hold these different views. A shared space is not the same as a neutral space. And I think sometimes we've been trying to create a neutral space and part of that's because the remembering of, of others who remember an action differently, that can cause pain. And But it's how do we then deal with that pain? I would venture not by pretending that the pain isn't there or by saying, well, we're just going to articulate that you're wrong because that really doesn't lead anywhere. Robert, thank you. Next week on the Hollywell Trust Testimony Series... You could say that Jerry McDade is a force of nature. I would certainly say that. What you're about to hear is part of his story. My honest opinion is, see when, see when the, these things was all happening, it was all the norm. It could have been anybody. Life carried on. Miss an episode of the Hollywell Trust Testimony Series or Hollywell Podcast? Well, you can catch up on our on-demand service both on Apple Podcasts and at SoundCloud.com. Just look for... Hollywell Trust. I'd like to thank my guest, Robert Miller, for taking the time to speak with us here today. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Derry and Straban District Council, and the Community Relations Council. Thank you all. And our guest next week will be Marathon Runner and Prime Decor Manager. Jerry McDade, who will join me and talk about what it was like growing up in the bogside during the heated, troublesome years of the 70s and 80s. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Tea.